Resiliency Within, with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com. Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well-being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine miller Karras. Welcome to Resiliency Within. I also want to remind our listeners that you can also see us on Facebook Live at Resiliency Within Facebook page. I want to start out today by um, commemorating uh, someone who was on the show last year in March and May, Dr. Brooke Ellison. Sadly, Brooke died on February 4th. And for those of you that remember the show, um, Brooke um, was a Harvard graduate. She um, was an ethicist. She was an author, and her book, um, Look Both Ways, um, was published last year. And I really want to encourage everyone to go out and buy that book. But what we've decided to do at Resiliency Within is we're going to have an encore show next week. Next Monday, we'll re-air the show that we did with Brooke um, and talk about and she then you can listen to her and hear the beauty of her and all that she was in the world. Um, I also have just recently heard that um, they're doing a, I, th- I think a documentary on Christopher Reeve. And as you know that um, Brooke was um, had quadriplegia from a accident she was in when she was eleven, and um, apparently she's mentioned in his documentary, and because his last directorial um, uh, effort was directing the Brooke Ellison story. So I, it's very important that all of you know about her and we continue to hear about her brilliance, her resiliency, and her message, which she was a strong advocate for disability rights. So I just want to remind you again that we will re-air that show next week. So today, I am so happy to have Dr. Blair Steele on the show, and we're going to talk about a subject that's very dear to my heart, But before we do that, I want to just say a little bit about um, drug drug abuse um, and addiction in the United States. So first of all, um, it's important for us to know that it's really widespread. And it's estimated by the National Institute of Drug Abuse that 40.3 million people in the U.S. had a substance use disorder in 2020. And that only 6.5% of people with um, a substance abuse disorder received treatment. And in 2021, about 107,000 people died of drug overdoses. And that Black and American Indian, Alaskan Native people had the highest rates of fatal overdose in 2021. So you, this is why this topic is so important. And when I've, I was talking to Blair uh, before the show started, that she is a very strong advocate for treatment. But let me just say a few things about this show. Resiliency is found at every stage of the recovery process. From the very beginning of wanting to continue living without a substance, a person's brain may have convinced them that it needs to survive. This is a remarkable, courageous first step. Tolerating the withdrawal, shame, and existential crisis soon follow, and millions of people, have, as we've said, have been, been able to stop the cycle. Um, and 
to break free of this process. So Dr. Blair Steele will explore with us the correlates of su successful recovery and, and targeted interventions um, that she has used in her practice. She'll highlight um, the Carrera Wellness Treatment and Spa where she has uh, it consults with. But what I'm really interested in is her concepts of the five C's of resilience. As you know, sure. we've talked a lot about resilience in the show, um, Blair, but I want to say a couple things about you first. And that is you've dedicated your life to serving and assisting others. Mm -hmm. um, you have a passion for this, but you've also had a lot of, you've had education about it as well. You, you have a dual major in psychology and philosophy at Manhattan College in New York City. You pursued a master's degree in counseling, and then you transitioned into a doctoral program as well. And you had a wealth of experience, but you've also, um, authored articles that have been in the Huffington Post, CNBC, Well Plus Good, and more. So it is such a pleasure to have you on the show. And yeah. as we um, get started today, do you want to start out with what's on your mind right now about, about anything as we get started, as you've heard your introduction about yourself and, and just kind of the, some of the tragedy that we know is also true about addiction, but also the hope. Yeah, you know, and hearing those statistics, it's staggering. It really is. And, um, and it's hard to hear certain groups of people um, being affected more so than others. And um, there's something about that that's wildly consistent in this country, sadly. I'm sure there's more systemic issues to talk about with that. Um, but yes, treatment, I believe in treatment. And I do believe treatment should be accessible to everyone who's willing to take that first step. I think it's um, incredibly resilient to want to be a cycle breaker. And well, some of the cycles, yeah. I'm sorry, is, is within oneself. And some of it is, you can see it through generations and generations and generations. Well, I have to say personally, and I've talked about this on our show before, is that my my dad was um, an al alcoholic. He died a number of years ago, and I feel so grateful because he did get into treatment, and he did find that um, Alcoholics Anonymous was very important to him in his, mm -hmm. his recovery process. And we, too, in our family have really generations of, of people who have had problems with alcohol. And mm -hmm. so treatment um, is very dear to my heart and talking about treatment because I know that there were times, my dad was a lovely man, that he didn't believe it was possible for him. And he believed, um, you know, I think he, has, he had a belief about himself sometimes that wasn't very um, nurturing. There was a lot of, there's a lot of shame, I think, that goes along with addiction. So I'm just wondering if you could share with us some of the patterns that you've noticed while working with, with individuals as it relates to, to uh, drug use. Yes, um, there's definitely this um, core belief, this, this core, we can call it self-worth, uh, we can call it self-esteem. But um, this shame inside oneself that is really malignant, it, shame does not mobilize change. Um, it really doesn't. Guilt may. I mean, guilt can be adaptive and focus on behavior and say, okay, well, you know, the way I'm living isn't uh, aligned with how I want to be. That, that can be adaptive and helpful. Um, but if there is this deep underlying belief that, you know, I am bad, um, it's really difficult to go through the stages of change 
and to engage in the process if you don't really truly believe that you're worth it. Well, and I think that there may be people listening to this show that they themselves have a problem with a substance, or maybe there's a family member that's saying, I don't know what to do about my mother, my father, my daughter, my son, my auntie, you know, my cousin, my best friend. Mm -hmm. um, so what are, you know, so if you have, if you're sitting there, you know, wondering as you've spoken, how do you get someone into care if they, um, if they have this problem? That's tricky. It really is. Um, and it depends on the person's stage of change, right? If someone is, um, the Prochaska, I don't know if you've heard of them, uh, wrote about the stages of change, um, trans theoretical model, which goes from pre-contemplative, which is basically, I don't have a problem. And then into uh, contemplative, which is like you could picture the guy at the bar with a drink who's kind of like, mm, maybe this isn't really good for me, but, but still in it. Um, and then you'll go into preparation, perhaps seeking treatment or going to AA and then taking action, putting in the work and ultimately maintenance. Um, but to get back to your question, Elaine, it, it's de it depends on the person. It depends on your relationship with the person. It depends where they're at and if they're willing and ready to give up the substance that their brain at the time and the throes of addiction thinks it needs to survive. Yeah. And I guess, you know, I want to just say something too. I think the stages of change are really important. Mm -hmm. and, I mean, because if, if your family member or, or friend are in that pre-contemplative stage yeah. and, and you're saying, but look at, I've got all these handouts and you can go, there's an AA meeting right around the corner and they're going, leave me alone. I'm fine. I don't have a, they didn't even say you might yeah. find dead drunk on the, <laughs> you know, <laughs> on your right. step and they're going, it's really not a problem. I just, I was just hanging out with my, my friends and so nothing's happening. But I think that contemplative stage is, is key because if you have someone who's going, well, you know, I guess I do have a problem, but I don't really know if I want to get help. Mm -hmm. And getting help also means if you have that much shame that you were talking about, right? Mm -hmm. well, then do I have to talk to someone about that shame? And I don't know if I really want to do that, but you see, even the way that I'm talking, there's a bargaining going back and forth. And that to me is a time that we sometimes have that opportunity to say, well, you know, let's talk about the, you know, why do you like drinking so much? See, to right. me, that's what I love about the stages of change and also Miller and Rolnick when mm -hmm. they talked about that, because then it's like, oh, well, motivational interviewing. And so yeah. what? Could you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that stages of change and motivational interviewing go hand in hand. I'm with you. It's my so, favorite modality in treatment. My it's one of my favorites too. I used to teach and it. And the evidence is there. Yeah. I love it. Um, well, firstly, the stages of change is helpful because it's important to meet someone where they're at. We have to connect with someone where they're at, right? So um, it would be unfortunate to go in there um, with a very contemplative or even preparation stage of change. And as a family member, we may want, or friend, we might want to fix this and take action and, and um, which could be our own anxiety um, and discomfort with the situation. So we'll want to jump in. But if someone's not, if their window of internal motivation hasn't opened yet, or the denial is still very much at the forefront, it's not going to work. And even furthermore, it, it could actually do harm. And if we're talking about shame and you have, um, and someone who's not functioning 
not feeling good about oneself, right? Engaging in the things that they know um, is not conducive to being a productive member of society or even functioning in a, your family or, or whatever it might be. And someone comes in with a treatment plan and a game plan, it can make them feel even worse, right? So connection, um, I think, is key. Um, it's kind of like asking someone, okay, okay, we're going to drive the car, but there's no car. You give you give right. them all the things to do, but oh, how do I drive the car? But you know, right. getting asked to 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 um um this the the motivational interviewing. Mm-hmm. When I first learned that, it was really it it was life changing for me as a therapist, but also mm-hmm. talking just thinking about my own life because the first question, which I remember the first time I asked the question to a person, and it was a person who wanted to quit smoking, mm-hmm. and I. Well, tell me what you like about smoking. And I never asked someone about what they liked about it. I always told them, if you continue to smoke, this is what could happen to you, right? All the, the all the facts, all the scare tactics, emphysema, right? And yeah, she, which people know they're they're aware. They're aware. Like, <laughs> well, she goes, my cigarettes have been with me mm-hmm. every positive and every hard thing in my life. It's yeah. what I turn to when I need support, and that was eye-opening for me. So I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. I'm That was a cigarette, but could that be a similar conversation? You could have someone if they're addicted to alcohol or an opioid or um, cocaine or whatever yes. it may be. Yes, absolutely. And I love that so much because um, even Gabor Mate talks about this a lot. It's let's talk about what's right about the substance in your life not what's wrong with it. We know all of that, right? But what's right about it? What function is it serving? Because as we talk about the need for support, maybe in this example you were giving, we could say, okay, well, um, do you find it hard to ask for support or who else can be um, an avenue of support for you in your life? And you can really uncover the function, the root that is motivating someone's behavior. Well, and if you say that, Blair, I think this is so important. I want to just underscore yeah, because getting to the root, like you're saying, is important. Yes. Because if you find out that person, well, I don't really, my my husband died, my 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 kids live in another state, then you're going, oh, so this is her support system. Right. So how might Talk you change about loneliness? Things? Yeah, to create a support system. Exactly. Exactly. You know, it could be like um, low-hanging fruit in a group therapy setting, for example, to to just speak about substances. Um, And in fact, to go into um, what the function that it is that it's serving you, like you said, we can brainstorm other ways to do that. And we can have compassion for ourselves, which is one of the five C's. But if we have... I, I couldn't imagine someone in a group therapy setting hearing someone say that and not having compassion. And then we can relate to that side of us that just wants to feel attached and like we belong. Um, also, do you think it's also a way that you can reduce the shame? Because you're not beating them with a stick. You're saying, oh, so it's been with you through every good and bad time of your life. Yes. That's why it's hard to give it up, right? Exactly. And it's like your best friend. It's consistent. It shows up, you know, whenever you need it to. Yes. And which also can speak to the grief that people may feel when they're considering giving up the cigarette or the drink or whatever substance it may be. 
Well, and just the way I'm just thinking, just in the way you're talking about it, there's a kindness in you, um, Blair, as you're talking, that that kindness extends to the to the client that may be walking through the door of the treatment center, who may at that moment not believe that there's any possibility yet somehow they walk through the door. And can you talk a little bit about the courage of that? To me, that's just such a courageous act to go through. Oh, my. It is. And it's something worth um, noting and celebrating when someone walks through the door and it's like, oh, thank goodness you're here. And um, at Carrera, especially, we love that wraparound, you know, familial feel of like, uh, you have arrived, you've already done one of the hardest parts of in the stages of showing up and, and saying, okay, I'm going to leave the comfort of my home or whatever it may be, my environment, my sense of control and um, independence and, and go out on this limb. And I think it's incredibly courageous um, just in to that. Walk, to walk through the yes. door. I know that we, yep. you, know, you talk about resilience and, and the five, the five components. And would you like to talk about that now a little bit so we understand what those are? Sure. And if you were to Google um, this sort of thing, you might find all sorts of of theories and maybe there's seven C's over here and five C's over there and four R's over there. So these are just, um, I think, fun tools for us to have and to think about when we're talking about um, stages of anything. Um, Also, what I find an important with treatment um, for substance abuse is the is treating an entire person. Elaine, you and I were talking about this. You know, we yes. can't just treat the body. So we can't just come in and give you the um, medication assisted treatment and the things that'll prevent someone from having a seizure or or whatever or tolerating the withdrawals and then that's it. Because that would be a revolving door. Well, could you pause for a second? I think that's really sure. important. Because I find that it's it's sometimes inconceivable to me because I've dealt with this for so long that people don't know that if you if you've been drinking a lot and you just stop drinking, Mm, dangerous. the The side effects of not drinking can actually what you said cause a seizure. Yeah, say a little bit about that. Why it's so important to be in a controlled environment. Yeah, so so really, alcohol and benzos are um, the most dangerous withdrawals in that it, someone could have a seizure. And without pre-existing uh, conditions, or I've seen people in their early 20s, I saw a young man at 23 fall and have a seizure um, coming off of benzos before. So it's very scary. I think in, in the media, um, we, we've seen like opioid withdrawal. Yeah. And, and it's ugly. So we think, oh, that's the worst. And you know what? It is pretty ugly, but it's not necessarily as dangerous as alcohol and benzos are. So it really is important to have um, someone monitored and provided with the medical component in those first week or two, monitoring blood pressure, things of that nature, and being treated and treating the body is like step one. The person who's coming off of alcohol, do they have to be in a residential treatment program or can they detox at home with, with guidance from a health care provider? I would not recommend that. I really would. And I, I would really want to emphasize that that is um, a medical urgency. And if you're not ready to go to treatment, we can even go to a hospital and certain hospitals have detox units um, for that, I would definitely not recommend doing that. Yeah, so basically what we're saying, it could be a medical emergency. And mm-hmm. so it's not something to just do lightly and to really do with some contemplation about getting the right kind of help in order to detox. Sure. 
but that's just the beginning. There's then there's the recovery right. process. So right. if you continue with the, well, I know we were talking about the five C's. If you can yeah, continue sure. with that, yes, I can sure. see a lot of tributaries to this conversation, Blair. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, if I were to list the five C's, so we have community, compassion, confidence, commitment, and centering. Okay, so we can we can talk about each of those separately. Okay. Um, so if you want to talk about community, the first thing I think of, and you were speaking about your father with AA, is having a sober support, having a fellowship. Um, and AA, to me, is, is phenomenal. Um, it's free. So talk about access to anyone. Um, there's something so authentic about being in a room full of people who have struggled and are interested in what's going on with you, like actually right? Um, I think in our families and in our workplaces, or someone's like, oh, how are you? And you're, you're kind of like, I'm, I'm okay. Not necessarily going to say, you know what? I'm really struggling. I was this close today to picking up a drink or whatever it may be. Um, and they get it. Get it. Yeah, they get it. Um, exactly. So the, the other component to that, though, I have met people that say, I don't want to go to AA. I, you know, I want a community, but that's not for me. I mean, that higher power, you may say it can be anything, but I just think it's God and I'm an atheist. Is there yeah. another alternative if you don't want to go to AA to build community? There are. So, and I start with that. I Like I said earlier, meeting people where they're at is so important. Um, there are a lot of ways to work around the religiosity of fellowship. Even God can be used as an acronym for good orderly direction, which is exactly what they're talking okay. about. Good orderly direction. Let's That's get it. that again. There <laughs> it is. Um, so there's a lot of fun ways to work within um, the fellowship still, um, which I like to present at first because, like I said, they're everywhere. They're all over the world. They're all day long and they're free. But let's say uh, still someone is like, nope, I'm not into it. Then fine. There are other beautiful, wonderful sober support systems such as Smart Recovery, which is a little bit more cerebral, a little bit more like, you know, I'm in control of this thing. I'm a little more above the neck, you know, a little more heady. Fine. If that's how someone thinks, if that's how someone relates, great. Um, there are also some more spiritual-based Sober support systems such as refuge recovery. So, well, and, so know, there's there's different here. options. But there are. So that's what you know. I think what Dr. Steele is helping us understand is that if you're saying there, oh, I tried AA, it didn't work. Well, maybe smart recovery might work. Maybe mm -hmm. refuge might work. So that's there are different ways. But I think the important thing is if your friendship group has been a friendship group of using, mm -hmm. then you need to think about well, how can I change that up? And even I may really love some of those folks. We know that those can that our friendship groups, right? Can that be a trigger to continued use? 100%. And we have a strong need to belong. We it, It's one of our basic needs. I really think, you know, we've got like shelter, food, water, sense of belonging, right? We're hardwired for this. Um, and isolation is, you'll see it across any substance, any age, when you talk about what life has been like, isolation is always a part of it. Yeah. So we definitely um, want people to know that you don't have to go through this alone. Well, and I guess that gets to the, the second part of the five C's, which is compassion. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. And we touched a little bit on it earlier. You know, the group therapy process 
is incredible. And when we really struggle to be gentle with ourselves and have compassion for ourselves, I've seen that process begin when you can listen to another person's story and just be like, yes, me too, and, and relate to it and feel it for someone else in the room. And then they're like, okay, well, if this person's, I see nothing but goodness in front of me. Um, maybe I have some of that too. Um, it's well, and I think compassion is so important because, but it's that what you said in the beginning, we were talking about it already, but if there's that shame, there's a lack of self-compassion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, you know, why really haven't I done this? Right. And so, but if, but if you, as the people surrounding, right, that person can demonstrate compassion and that's kind of getting back to the motivational interviewing and having a different approach of talking about it, that may actually help and encourage someone who's so kind of in the soup of shame and self-blame to start thinking about it in a different way. That's right. I read this little line this morning that I loved and it said, alcohol use disorder is not a drinking problem. It's a thinking problem. And I love that. Um, you know, we can, even talking about the the neuroanatomy of of substance use and and the way the brain responds to it, I find to be shame reducing, right? And it's also universal because let's say you have a room and you have someone who's been using alcohol for however long and then someone who's using IV um, uh, meth and fentanyl or whatever. Some people on the surface might say, well, I don't relate to this person. But once you once you get to the the function of it um, and look beyond the the surface level, there's a universality to it. And and so you know, with the that increased compassion that you may have with you're just with like minded people who said, "I've been there," mm-hmm. but there's a way out. I mean, the compassion that people have for each other in community can be one of the ways that that can start to really kind of lay a foundation. Yes. For covering. I always like to say ing, not ed, because sometimes you go, well, I just want it to be over, but I guess people tell me it's never over, right? It's an ing process. Right. Yes, right, right. You're always in recovery for 30 years, in recovery still. <laughs> yes. Which nice. So we don't become complacent. Yeah, complacent. Well, I, ha- I have a very close family member that um, she just recently f- um, finished 20 years in recovery. Um, and, um, and so, and she's actually a sponsor now in AA. And yeah. just transformed her life. Yeah. So I just, um, I guess I want to call her out. I'm, I didn't ask her for permission to use her name, but she'll listen to this and she'll know who she is. So <laughs> I think I'll make sure that she does that. But we're going to take a small break, um, and uh, and then we'll come back. And we we've only gotten through two of the two of the the two of the C's so far, and we will come back and we will listen to, we will hear more from Dr. Blair Blair Steele. I think we can all see her dedication. And she's going to tell us a little bit about the treatment program that she works with as well, so we can get a greater understanding of how they actually operationalize the things that we're talking about. So we'll be back in just a couple minutes. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma-informed and resiliency-focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair 
to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine miller Karras' book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at Elaine at ResiliencyWithin.com. Elaine miller Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. I'm, um, this is Elaine miller Karras from, and we are talking to Dr. Blair Steele. And we were talking about substance use, misuse, and addiction. And um, we're going to talk a little bit about the treatment center that you work with as well. But before we do that, we have to get through the five C's. And I think we're just on the third one. (laughs) So So let's keep going. Okay, let's keep going. So we also have confidence, right? So the the belief, and I think resiliency and confidence, those defined, could look very similar, right? The belief that one can... um, experience adversity or or life stressors and work through it, right? So that's not about getting over it. It's it's about working through it, showing up for yourself emotionally, being honest with the feelings and being able to implement the the tools that you've learned, the plan that you've devised for, you know, even with, with treatment specifically, we have to talk about what to do, not if, but when you're triggered right? Uh, the, the likelihood of that happening is pretty great. And we want people to be equipped um, with tools in the event that that happens, because life happens. I mean, I even had a client who um, was about a year sober and his child passed away. I mean, horrible oh. things can happen. We lose loved ones, we lose jobs, we move, we, life happens. We have pandemics, hopefully that'll remain singular in our lifetime, but hope so. Yes, yeah, so we. Have- I think that's why it's an ing process because, like, right. because you've had this, this, this issue, and I think you know you mentioned Gabor Mate, mm-hmm. and I know that one of the things he says, well, addiction is because of trauma, 
Yes. And that there's so much trauma that's happened oftentimes in the lives of people who have developed um, um, the misuse of a substance. And I, so I think part of treatment is also treating trauma. And do you believe that as well, Dr. Steele, that with trauma treatment, it's not only like you have to, you know, deal with the physiological issues regarding withdrawal, but all these, these components that we're talking about, compassion, confidence, and commitment, but there's also trauma. There is, there is. And, um, you know, trauma, I think people assume that trauma is about telling your story where I really feel like trauma work is, um, and I'd be interested in your thoughts as a trauma expert, really, this is your wheelhouse. It's really about being able to tolerate the present moment. Do you agree? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's part of the reason why the wellness skills of the community resiliency model and the trauma resiliency model is about paying attention to interceptive awareness. Yes. And interceptive awareness has to do with reading your nervous system. We also call it right. body literacy. So you need so if you are triggered and let's say all of a sudden your stomach starts to tighten up and your fists get tight and then you go oh, I need to have I, need, I I just need a drink. Mhm. So then, well, what could you do with the physiological sensation? The right. thought is I want to drink. The emotion may be distress, but then the physical reaction is sometimes is what really moves us to take that drink. So if we go into the present moment, like you say, and say, oh, I can ground myself. I can feel my feet on the ground. I can feel my butt in the chair. I can mm -hmm. feel my hands on the table. A deep breath comes in, and now you're out of that physiological state. There still may be the desire to drink, but you're not so driven because you've dealt with all three components of it. So, right. and right. that trauma, you know, the, the sensations that have to do with trauma, those are hard things to get rid of. And that's why I think not only treatment of the, of the mind and the emotions, but of the body, kind of the trifecta as I talk about it is really essential. It is. I think so as well. It really, we have to treat the entire person. So what do you, so, so in, in your way of working with people, what kinds of of interventions do you think are really helpful? It, it's so varying, right? As we said earlier, it's where the person's at. You want to consider someone's culture, someone's um, age, someone, everything. The way a person thinks is, is tremendously important. Um, and even if we're talking about trauma, so trauma, you know, people I've seen will come into the treatment center and they've already taken this massive step and we'll say, okay, I'm ready to face it now. And as a um, as a therapist, I, I I will validate and even uh, praise the courage to want to to address it, but also have to pump the brakes a little bit and um, and support people in understanding the need to have some coping skills, some exactly. time in between, um, just really we were treating the trauma with drugs or alcohol, right? And it's quick. And the things that we're going to talk about and the tools, the grounding techniques, all of that, they're not as um, as quick of a fix. They uh, require some time and some patience. And so that immediate gratification isn't there. Um, so we have to put yeah. some time and space in between and uh, get some sobriety under our belt before we were to really delve into it. So is that what you call centering in the in the five C's? Are these some of the centering practices? Yes. And this is where Carrera is in a league of its own, is they do so much body work. 
So if we understand trauma as being the body's response to something, we can start working within the body and learning how to regulate our nervous systems organically. Um, so whether that's with a with massage or even going in um, a steam room or whatever that looks like, uh, doing some somatic experiencing work, addressing it on from the physio from in the body first is a great first step before going into the narrative behind um, what may have happened to someone. Well, and I'm going to, I want to underscore what you said, because I think that many people, that's certainly what I've learned. People think if they go into treatment that, oh, it's, I have to tell the complete story with all the gory details of everything that's ever happened to me. And I've learned that isn't the case that sometimes that actually you get become so flooded that sometimes that can actually move you out of therapy rather than staying in therapy. And, and then, if, hey, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so that's all. It increases the risk for relapse, and we really want to treat that. Right, and also, um, I think that when I say to people often is that you can tell me as little or as much as you want about what happened, but if you want to tell me as much, then. I, I do something called a resiliency pause. It's like to stop. Well, let's just try to see and be in the present moment to know that we're not back 20 years ago. We're here. You're here with me. You've made this big step. And that just even reminding that person of the present moment can sometimes reduce their distress and the nervous system comes back into balance again. So, but I, but I think that's important for people to know that are thinking about treatment. You don't have to tell your whole story. That's true. And even what you were just describing is so powerful. And right there could be the first notch in the belt of like, I was just sitting with someone with these with these big feelings, right? Which is healing, that alone can be healing. There's a lot of Rogerian relational, the relationship itself between um, provider and, and someone seeking treatment, therapist, however terminology, client you wanna use. Um, just that alone and, and being able to celebrate that, that win, I was about to say a small win, but maybe that's a huge win Win. to have been triggered or activated and being able to take the deep breath and notice the sensations in your body and not run out of the door is huge. Well, and can be really the starting point of then looking at the other constructs that have brought this into place. And even knowing it's possible. I feel like people come in, they don't even think that that's possible. Yeah. So so um, let me ask you this. So it sounds like there's a, an array of different treatments that you that you believe are really important. And mm-hmm. a lot of them are body-centered. Um, and so then once a person, let's say, can regulate their nervous system, they yeah. have those centering tools, then what next? Okay, so this is where um, individualizing is important. I'm a big family person. Um, and so going into the family system and doing some family systems work, I've seen to be extremely helpful for people, understanding what role they've played in the system, understanding how the family tolerates or doesn't tolerate certain emotions. Um, let's say a family was really good at being really good, but any other you know, big feeling, so I would say negative emotion, I don't even like saying that, um, but if they were shoved under the rug, anytime we experience things um, in that in that realm of emotion, we're going to automatically try to squash it or numb it or avoid it or whatever. So building insight into, into that is, is a big one. 
inner well, child work is yeah, and I think that kind of just say just something a little bit uh, about the family, but of course we'll yeah. go to the child. But I think you know, having been in the family, that we all had a role in it. And, sure. and things that was kind of oh, like the aha moment for me mm-hmm. is how in some of the way what we did is that we aided and abetting abetted my father's continued use without knowing it. Mm-hmm. That we were all a system of maintaining the status quo. Mm-hmm. And that when he entered treatment, we had to learn about how we too could unwind what we were doing that inadvertently was creating the system that was perpetuated by his alcohol use. That's right. Um, and the hardest person I have to say was my mom. My mom had the hardest time because she had to let go of control. Mm. order to even be able to acknowledge that she had something to do with it, which was a big, big earth shattering thing, which she was able to do. That's but amazing. also for the, for, I know my sister and myself, we went to adult children of alcoholics. We found it really helpful. Right. And we recommend those in adjunct to family systems work. Um, some of the other groups that are like oh, Alex. Yes. Al-Anon, that um, ACA, I believe is what that's called. Even codependency or codependence anonymous, CODA. Yes. Uh, all of it. It's amazing. Of course, do it. Um, I was just thinking of Melody Beattie and Codependent No More. What a classic that is. Uh, yeah, I know when I was um, really into this many years ago, it was Sharon's Weichskyder Cruz and her family dynamics mm-hmm. about how, you know, there's the hero child, there's the mascot, mm-hmm. and that you didn't have to have one being that particular person. You could have different components of that mm-hmm. and how humor deflected it and how you can, you develop that humor, but then you never talk about the feelings because everything's a joke, right? Yeah. Yes. That's right. Yes. I'm curious, was your father able to achieve sobriety in his My father was amazing. I have to I mean it's it's just a sweet and sad story. So he got into sobriety in his 60 his 62nd year and he had um a, he was devote we used to tease him about being a devotee an AA devotee. Mm-hmm. But sadly, 6 months into his sobriety, he was diagnosed with lung cancer. Oh. And um, he went into a coma three days before his one-year sobriety date. And Mm. guess what day he died on? May May 20th, which was his um, year sobriety date. So the whole family went to his um, AA meeting and got his one-year chip posthumously. I have to tell you, I gave his... his, at uh, the funeral I gave his eulogy, the 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 church was filled with AA members and mm-hmm. asked my mom, because she was very quiet. She didn't like to have shared that my dad was an alcoholic. I said, you know, there's going to be a lot of people from AA there. Well, can I talk about him? Can I talk about his recovery? Would that be okay with you? And she said, yes, I was shocked. And wow. oh my gosh, I think that his recovering and how he did it and how he and we were all afraid that when he got cancer, he'd just start using again, but he didn't. He became more dedicated, if that makes sense, it's to his recovering. Isn't that a great story, Blair? Yes. It is. Thank it's, you for asking me about that. It's such a yeah. sweet thing. Yeah. So he did maintain it during the most difficult time. And that's why I think, what well, I believe so much in recovery, because if he could do it through chemo mm-hmm. and, cancer and like facing his death, then I really believe that anyone could do this. And to be present for all of that. Oh my gosh. And he was not only present with all of that, he was present with all of us. Yeah. A way that he never knew was possible. Mm-hmm. That he could embrace himself with that compassion and that kindness that you talk about. Because when we got to see that, because we always knew that was there, because he was a wonderful man, mm-hmm. even though he had this horrible problem. 
And that was, you know, that was a tribute to him that he could then, he could embrace that and we could see that before his death. It's, it's amazing. And even the way you speak about him, and I love hearing that, an incredible person with a terrible problem. Yes. Well, I was sharing with you earlier, my first internship was that I was just sitting before what I found to be deeply feeling, intelligent, incredible human beings. Yeah. And I, really and I think that's, right. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's so important. I, I mean, I think partly why I'm, I do the work that I do mm -hmm. was related to some of the foundational things that happened to me, but also I'm a hopeful person. And yeah. I think that he inspired that hope in me um, when I saw him going through his recovery process and his death. I mean, it, they were so both intertwined in kind of this beautiful spiritual way that, yeah endures and endures to this day. I mean, he died many years ago now, but I mean, he's still so with me when I think about his, his courage, all the things you've talked about, actually, you know, Blair, you know, I, I think so. I'm so, um, I'm so impressed with you and the way that you're talking about recovering and working with people. So, um, so I want to kind of loop back and talk about the treatments. I mean, so we, I, you know, kind of brought in that the, the whole, you brought in the whole family needs to have treatment mm -hmm. because it's a family disease is what, I guess is what we called it in terms of how it impacts us. Mm -hmm. And so how does the treatment program that you work with um, bring the family together or do they bring the family together in treatment? It's always encouraged. And even um, as someone admits, we strongly encourage um, signing the release of information and allowing us to jump right in. Um, and very, in certain circumstances that might not be beneficial or helpful or even ill-advised, but that those are unique. For the most part, um, having Involving someone in your life and your family system and, and as many as you're willing to is incredibly helpful. Not to mention, this is, let's say you do a lot of your own work, but you re-enter the system. Yes. The likelihood of reverting back to your role is great, right? So we're going to encourage people to see their role and um, to hopefully make some changes as well to support people after discharge. As we think about it... I, Treatment is, it's stabilizing, right? Yes. It's stabilization. And then we're going to do as much therapy as possible. So um, at Carrera, people will have multiple individual sessions weekly. And through that, you'll see is, are we really talking about grief? Perhaps that's at the root of it. Are we talking about, do we need to go and do the inner child work? Um, yeah, so could you talk a little bit about the inner child work? That's part of the treatment then. And what does that mean to do inner child work? You know, I bet you if you asked 100 therapists, you'd get 150 <laughs> responses. 150, yes. <laughs> but I can tell you what it means to me. And, um, and that is asking people, um, let's say if it was Johnny asking, well, what did little Johnny need at this time? And, and a needs assessment is amazing. You know, I've asked a, an entire group. I used to do the family um, therapy program over in at Cliffside Malibu. And I would ask the family members to what they need and to do a brief needs assessment. And sometimes it'd be crickets in the room and people don't really know what they need. Yeah. Um, and not to mention, you know, parents, we're all people, right? We're, we all have our, our flaws and the ways that we were programmed. Um, so there's a chance that it wasn't modeled for us how to um, cope 
or tolerate or sit with um, our feelings. I think even for many years, uh, self-abandonment was kind of what was taught. It's like, well, don't feel that way. Yeah. Right. So if we can uh, sit with someone with their pain, um, with their shame, going back to some of the um, first memories people can recall feeling unsafe or feeling um, dysregulated, um, then that, that's asking, okay, well, what if we could go back there, what would you tell yourself yeah. right now? Um, how can we be the the adult in the room for the the child who was developing? And it, it's early on. It'd be amazed to hear people talk about like um, when they first started overeating at age, let's say seven to ten, something like that. Or you know, the process began um, in other ways. So you can really localize it, right? And I think that I love what you said. I often have said to people, what well, now that you're kind of in this new space, mm -hmm. what do you want to say to that little one that lives mm -hmm. inside? And, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes I'll go, that's a weird question. <laughs> that She's not there. I said, no, but there's a physiological state. And that's mm -hmm. when the body comes back in because I say, oh, yep. yeah, it's like I get small. It's like I don't have a voice. Right. It's like to, to convince people that's even there. And I, I can just so many times when people say, well, maybe I just kind of reach in and give them a hug. I go... You can imagine yourself getting that hug to that little one inside of you. And I've had people just start tearing up, but not sad tears, but tears of compassion for that one that lives inside, which I love. Right. Yeah. And, and we're good inside. Yes. You know, uh, yes. Dr. Becky is, I'm like all about her right now. And, and um, she talks about parenting and all of that. But um, the point is, um, most of the people I've worked with, I would say everyone is really good inside. Well, it's like when we're children, we have that purer self, right? Mm -hmm. Before all the piles on of the, the, the traumas have come to us that we can right. look at ourselves and sense the pureness of our, our natures as children before, let's say, all the trauma even happened to us. Okay. Um, I just recently wrote an article for Psychology Today called The Rebecca Effect that's based on the character in Ted Lasso that yeah. is this very, this very subject because there's a, a part in the, in the show where she looks in the mirror and she goes and she she goes rawr like she's an, a lion and it's but what she's seeing in the mirror is her little self mm -hmm. it's a very powerful moment but i think that that's possible for all of us to have healing for that inner child like you're saying well i must say my goodness our time is is quickly um is quickly going and i want to make sure that you talk about what you want to talk about so i know that you work for carrera mm -hmm. and um this treatment program and where is it located now where, where if people need, wanted to come to if they're listening go i want to i want to i yeah. want dr blair Steele for my therapist where can i find her yes yeah so um there are three locations of carrera one is in malibu and two are in the hollywood hills um so they're in la um so i imagine this would be an expensive proposition but i understand sure. that this organization is also going to be opening up another arm. And can you tell us about that too? That's right. Um, um, because it is important that treatment is accessible, right? So um, Richard Tate, the owner of Carrera, has acquired a treatment center called One Method um, that has multiple locations in LA that will uh, be taking um, 
insurance policies that may not cover Carrera, but they can cover one method and they're still phenomenal treatment. It really is top notch still. And they are currently working on their in-network contracts. So Mm -hmm. the accessibility just gets even greater. And so I think it's important that we see that people are working in multiple levels. But I also need to say, because there's also, in my belief, I wish everyone who needed treatment could get treatment, but that's not always possible because not everything um, has a payment source. But there are um, different programs within LA County, for example, Los Angeles County Department of Behavioral Health can be an entry point into finding places that people can go into recovery. But also every community has a, a doorway. And remember that AA is completely free. Mm-hmm. You don't have to pay one cent to walk through an AA meeting. And now they even, ha- I think they have the AA meetings on Zoom as well. If you don't want to go in person, you can go on a Zoom platform as well. So um, Dr. Blair Steele, um, it's been such a joy to have you on the show oh, and to hear your knowledge base about this um very huge problem, as you know, has affected me very deeply and personally. So final words, what would you like to say to the audience to make sure that they know about as as we're getting ready to leave today? Yeah, um, let's see, without overthinking it, you know, I'll just, I'll just say substance abuse, no one's immune to it. It is in the homes um, of a lot of us and um, to know that you're not alone with it and, um, and if you or someone you know really needs help to to please reach out and go to the, go to these community resources, um, go to a meeting. And, and you have a website. I for do. Your, yeah, so can you tell us your website so people can sure. contact you if they if they want to talk with you? Sure. Yes, that's uh, www.drblairsyd.com. That's P-S-Y-D. Um, you can also get me on Instagram um, at drblairsyd. Well, that's an easy one to remember. So I, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today. You reminded me what else was true about my life and my family and also a dear resource to me, my father. So thank you for that. So as I we get ready to end today, um, I want to remind all of our listeners, if you're grappling with addiction in yourself or with others that you love, remember that help is available. Listen to the very wise words of Dr. Blair Steele. And, and know that hope is possible and that recovering is possible. So until we meet again, this is Elaine Miller-Karis signing off for Resiliency Within. And remember our sponsor, the Trauma Resource Institute, www.traumaresourceinstitute.com, where you can learn about our treatment programs, um, the Trauma resiliency model and the community resiliency model that can be very helpful for people that have a substance use um, challenge. So Selene Miller-Karis signing off. Thank you so much. You take care. Thank you, Blair. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine Miller-Karis, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon.
Resiliency Within, with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com.